You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John 11, and we'll read together the first 16 verses of the 11th chapter of John's Gospel. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. And Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. Let's bow together in prayer before we begin. Our Father, we turn now to your word, and we do so with the confident expectation that you would send your spirit to be our teacher and our guide. We thank you for your word, and for the truth, and for revealing to us more of our Savior on each and every page of this sacred text. We pray that you would be our teacher here this morning, and you'd be glorified through our study together. In Christ's name, amen. Now, for the record, uh, she wiped his hair, his feet with her hair, just so we got that clear. Like three or four of you that caught that last week, and everybody came up afterward to let me know where I had messed up. And in times like that, I just take great comfort in the fact that nobody out there wishes that they were up here doing what I'm doing. <clears throat> so you can all sympathize with me. This last week in the news, there were uh, two celebrity deaths. I don't know if you caught them. Maybe you caught one of them, or both of them, or neither one of them. Uh, One of them was an author who died, a very uh, well-known author, a multi-million dollar author, best-selling author who wrote political action, and some of his books were turned into movies. He died at the age of 66, which I think is a a young age to die. Everybody know who I'm talking about? Tom Clancy, that's right. The second one is probably less recognized by people in the world, but he was a celebrity nonetheless. Chuck Smith died, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement. Now, the the contrast in those two deaths is quite striking, and I'm not going to go into that, but when when a celebrity dies, it strikes me as quite differently than when just when ordinary people die. And by ordinary people, I mean people in my family. I I don't know any celebrities. I've never been around any celebrities. I'm not related to any celebrities. And I know that people die around us all the time. People are dying out there. People in our families are dying right now. Maybe people that we know are dying. People that we don't know are dying. And we just kind of... Death just kind of comes and goes, and we accept that. But when somebody who is a celebrity, who is really notable, dies, 
it strikes me quite differently than when ordinary people die. When a celebrity dies, it kind of, maybe it doesn't do this for you, but it kind of makes you stop and take notice. And I have noticed that more and more celebrities seem to be dying. It seems as if they're in the headlines constantly now, people who are celebrities who are dying. Now, I don't think that that is because there's some disease in Hollywood and everybody's getting it and they're dying off. I think Hollywood is diseased, but I don't think it's causing people to die. I think it is because I am at that age where the people that I am familiar with from my childhood, who are a couple of decades ahead of me, are starting to die off. Maybe not a couple of decades. Let's just say they're several decades ahead of me and they're starting to die off. And I'm more familiar with their names and what they did. And as a kid, I remember my mom would say, so-and-so died today. And I'd say, we're related to him. I didn't, I wasn't familiar with the name at all. But now, every celebrity that dies, I notice this. So when a celebrity dies, there are several things that run through my mind. Let me give you a list of kind of how, what my mind turns through when somebody notable dies. The very first thing I think of is, I hope they were saved. I hope that at some point this individual came to trust Christ on his deathbed, that somebody got the gospel to this person at some point during their life, especially if this is somebody that I'm not, I'm not familiar with. I'm not concerned whether Chuck Smith got saved before he died, but I too do truly believe that somebody got to Tom Clancy before he died and shared the gospel with him. So I hope that individual saved because I, I do tremble at the thought of what eternal justice looks like for somebody who lived their entire lives without Christ, without the truth, hating the truth and warring against it. So I hope that they were saved. The second thing that goes through my mind is the realization that nobody is immune to death. No matter how big your empire is, no matter how much money you have, no matter how well-known you are, you are going to die like a mere man. Psalm 82, we looked at a couple weeks ago. They die like mere men. Tom Clancy on his deathbed. It's just like me on my deathbed. His money cannot deliver him. His money cannot delay his death. The second thing that I'm reminded of when a celebrity dies is how uncertain life is. It's very uncertain. Because I don't know if you're like me, but I can tend to sort of go tripping through life and living day to day and, and not really realizing that the people who, that not only am I getting old, but the people that I'm familiar with are getting older as well. We're all aging at the same rate. All of us are getting older. And I tend to live my life thinking that when I'm 90 years old, Joe Montana is still going to be making Fruit of the Loom commercials and Mick Jagger is still going to be touring. And that's not going to happen. Mick Jagger might still be touring, but Joe Montana is not going to be doing Fruit of the Loom commercials. These celebrities are, are getting older and they're dying off. And one of these days, 50 years from now, when I'm 90 years old, Lord willing, nobody's going to remember Joe Montana's name. As sad as that is, and that is a true tragedy, is it not? Not only that he's going to die, but that nobody's going to even remember his name. Another thing that goes through my mind when celebrities die is that there is a day appointed for them. And I always realize God marked that day out for that individual before that individual was ever born. And like them, there is going to come a day when God is going to kill me. And I'm fine with that. He is going to separate my immaterial me from my material me. And he is going to end my life on that day. And God is not going to be struggling while I am on my deathbed to give, deathbed, to give me more and more life and more and more breath and to keep me alive for just another day. The day is going to come and he knows when it is. And when my time is up, my time is up and that's it. And I'm happy with that. And then the last thing that kind of goes through my mind when a celebrity dies is that death is an intrusion. And notable deaths remind me that death is not the way that God created this. It is an intrusion. It is an intrusion into God's good creation, an intrusion over which he is sovereign, an intrusion that he uses for his own purposes and for his own glory. But it is an intrusion nonetheless. 
And every sickness and illness and every death ought to remind us that this is the effects of the fall. It's sin. Every death should say sin. It's got sin stamped on it. The soul that sins, it shall die. Physical death is the result of sin. Spiritual death is the result of sin. So every illness that I get, every cough, every infirmity, every disease, and every death that I experience and see experienced around me, all of that should remind me that sin is to blame. My sin, your sin, our sin, Adam's sin, sin. All of that is the result of sin. And we live in a cursed creation. And everything should remind us of that and point us to the one who overcame death and who himself is the resurrection of life and promises victory over death to all those who will trust in him. And that brings us to John chapter 11, where we are occupied with this thought of death and God's sovereignty over death. We are seeing in those first seven and eight verses, of those first seven verses, that God is sovereign over death. He uses death for his purposes and even illness to accomplish his purposes. And he receives glory, not by death itself, that death itself is inherently glorifying to God, but that God brings good out of it and uses it to accomplish his purposes And thus he is glorified by death. And God is sovereign over that. And all of it happens and unfolds according to his timetable. And he has a purpose in it and a goal for it. And it's it's all going somewhere. It's not purposeless. And that brings us to the end of verse 6, verse 7, where we stopped last week. And we had to stop sort of in the middle of this story because there's really just no way we can take all of this in one sitting. And so we're picking it up at verse 7. Jesus said in verse 4, the sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God. That's sort of a glimpse at where he is taking this, what the end of this is going to be. It's not going to be death, the sickness, that is going to be the ultimate outcome of this. Lazarus would go through death, but this whole situation would serve to glorify God's purposes. Verse 6, So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The after this refers to the after two days. And the two days seems to be intentional. And some have suggested that maybe Jesus was hanging out in Perea, waiting to take his trip to Bethany to give Lazarus time to die. That would be a fair, I think, guess or speculation. He waited two days, whatever his purposes were in it. It did end up serving and accomplishing that goal that Lazarus died. It was after those two days that Jesus breaks the news to his disciples that they're going back to Judea. Now, if you're one of the disciples, you can imagine the consternation at the thought of returning back to Judea. It wasn't too much earlier than this that they had left Judea to go to Perea. And why had they left Judea to go into Perea? Across the Jordan, off into the wilderness, away from Jerusalem. Why did they do that? Because the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had picked up stones to stone Jesus when he had claimed that he and the Father were one. So they were hostile, they were murderous, they had murderous intentions. They wanted to seize Jesus. They tried stoning him, they tried seizing him. And Jesus escaped, went across the Jordan River into the region of Perea. And now, after a few days, a few weeks, he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Now, if you're one of the disciples, I am sure that you remember full well what it was like to stand inside the temple at the end of chapter 8, right before they healed the man born blind, and see the Jews pick up stones to stone your master. I'm sure that you would remember what it was like to stand in the temple in Solomon's portico in John chapter 10 and hear Jesus say, I and the Father are one, and see the Jewish leaders start to call for stones and they're bringing stones. What are you doing? Why are you stoning me? Not for good work, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And they picked up stones to stone him. They were going to kill him there. And then they tried to seize him. If you're one of the disciples, you have watched all of this unfold. You know that every time Jesus goes into the city of Jerusalem, begins speaking in the city of Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders are trying to kill him. 
And I don't know how many times they would have sat around the fire late at night and said, remember that harrowing time inside the temple? Oh yeah, boy, we barely escaped by the skin of our teeth. I was, man, I was nervous. And we got out of the city of Jerusalem, not one minute too soon for me. And then you have Jesus after a couple of weeks say, hey, we're going back to Judea. Let's go back to Judea. If you're one of the disciples, what do you do? Say what? You want to go where? Back to Judea. Why would we go back to Judea? What's the point of going back to Judea? You want to go right back into the lion's den? That's only, go to Bethany, that's only two miles away outside the city of Jerusalem. It's inconceivable that somebody as notable as Jesus and well-known as Jesus could go anywhere near the city of Jerusalem and not attract the attention of the entire Jewish establishment. Impossible that he could do that. He could not go from Perea into Judea and keep his whereabouts unknown. Everybody would know that he was going from into Bethany. Everybody would know when he arrived. Now, if I'm one of the disciples, I think I could present a pretty convincing case to Jesus as to why we should stay in Perea and not go to Judea. For instance, I would suggest to him, Lord, we're, we're in a time of very fruitful ministry here. We find out from the end of chapter 10, verses 42 and 43, or sorry, 41 and 42, that Jesus in Perea was out in the area where John was first baptizing and everybody was coming to Jesus and they were saying, everything John said about this man is true. And what was the result of that? Many people believed on him. So I would say to Jesus, Lord, it doesn't seem wise at all to go into Judea and anywhere near Jerusalem and to leave a fruitful ministry here. People are believing upon you here. We tried that in Jerusalem. They were unwilling. They were blind. They were not willing to believe. They will not believe. You condemn them. Let's just leave that. Stay out here where people are coming and believing and give us 8, 10, 12 months and we'll have enough people out in the wilderness believing that we could take Jerusalem if we wanted to. Besides that, Lord, it doesn't seem at all necessary to go from Perea into Judea to Bethany. I mean, after all, if if you found out two days ago that Lazarus was sick and you did nothing for two days, certainly this cannot be a life-threatening illness. Lazarus will get better. It doesn't seem at all you didn't rush two days ago to go to Bethany. Why would you rush now to go to Bethany? It seems unnecessary. Besides, don't you have the ability to heal somebody from a distance? If you're wanting to heal Lazarus, we don't need to go to Bethany. Remember the nobleman's son back in Samaria in chapter 4? Well, they wouldn't have mentioned chapter 4 because they didn't have chapter 4 at the time. But remember the nobleman's son back in Bethany when you just said, go your way, your son lives? You healed him from a distance. Certainly you can do the same thing with Lazarus. We don't need to make the trip. It's unnecessary. And on top of all of that, it seems unwise to go into uh, to Bethany. Unwise. Why would we needlessly endanger ourselves and needlessly endanger you, our master, isn't it tempting God to, to needlessly go into a place where there is danger and, and uh, possible death? Wouldn't that be tempting God? So it seems unnecessary and unwise and much more uh, to go there and much more fruitful to stay here right where we're at. That would have been a good case to make. And I probably would have made that case. And guess what? I would have been wrong. I would have been wrong. Because Jesus had something in mind that he now reveals to the disciples, even though we can... We can sense the wisdom of staying there and feel the wisdom of that. Jesus says to them, we're going back into Judea. We tend to do this with the Lord. We argue with the Lord about the path that he marks out for us. But oftentimes we need to be just like the disciples and trust the wise master that the path that he has marked for us is better than the path that we would choose. Sometimes it is true that God leads us through paths that we would not choose for ourselves. That to us, from our perspective, seem unwise, unnecessary, and unproductive and unfruitful. And we come up with all kinds of ways why we should avoid this path that God puts us on. Sometimes He puts us to fulfill, puts us in roles to fulfill that we wouldn't pick for ourselves, do, gives us duties to do that we would not pick for ourselves, and charts out for us paths to walk in our life that we would never choose to walk. But if the disciples had not gone back to Bethany, guess what they would have missed out on? 
the resurrection of Lazarus. So even though from their vantage point, this is unwise and unnecessary and unproductive, from the Lord's vantage point, it is entirely wise, entirely necessary, and entirely productive. Because they would learn something about Jesus in Bethany that they could never learn if he healed Lazarus from a distance in Perea. They needed to learn that he was the resurrection and the life. And if you and I were allowed to chart our own lives and our own paths and select for us the lessons that we would learn about the Lord, how paltry and small would our understanding of God be? Because the Lord tends to teach us hundreds of lessons about himself by charting for us by his hand and his good providence and his wisdom the path that he has marked out for us. And sometimes we don't like to go down it, but we must. And it's then that we must trust the Lord and say, you have chosen wisely. Your hand and your, old, your, your infinite wisdom and love and grace and providence has marked this out for me, and so I will walk with the Lord through this and learn what I can. That is God by his providence. He does that. Now look at verse... Where are we at? Look at verse 8. The disciples, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again. Now the answer that Jesus gives them in verse 9 is a proverbial statement. And you, we're not going to be able to catch necessarily the the full impact of this proverbial statement right away. You're going to read this and you're going to think, now how does that answer their concern? And how does that answer their question? And you're not going to see it right away, but as we unpack this, I think you'll see how this is a perfectly satisfactory and perfectly comforting answer. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now that is a, that is a proverb. And it's a proverbial statement that Jesus gives and a statement that they would have been familiar with because they would quote Proverbs to each other back and forth. Not a proverb from the book of Proverbs, but kind of a saying of the day. And here's what it means. Are there not 12 hours in the day? What is Jesus referring to there? 12 hours, quote unquote, 12 hours, was how they would, how they would refer to the daylight portion of the day. Now, for them, just like for us, the days get longer and the days get shorter. But 12 hours was the, what they would, how they would mark off the daylight portion of the day. So when the daytime or the daylight time was longer in the summer than in the winter, or how it would work for them, are they south of the equator? Okay, whatever time of the year it was when the daylight was longer for them, they would call that 12 hours and they would divide that daylight portion up into 12 one-hour periods. But an hour for them would be longer than, an, than a normal hour. They didn't have precise timekeeping devices like we do. So 12 hours was just the daylight portion. And when the daylight portion was long, the hours would be slightly longer. But when the daylight portion got shorter, the quote-unquote hours would be slightly shorter. But there were still 12 of them. But the length of them went back and forth like this. Does everybody catch what I mean by that? Okay, so 12 hours is the daylight portion. And here's Jesus' point. During the 12 hours that is appointed as the daylight portion of the day, during those 12 hours, if you set out to go on a journey or to take a walk or you go somewhere, you're not going to stumble. You don't trip over tree trunks. You don't trip over rocks. You don't trip over each other. The dangers are less because you're walking in the day. But if you set out to go on a journey at night when you cannot see because the light of the world is not out there shining, you're going to trip over stumps. You're going to trip over uh, tree branches. You're going to trip over rocks. The dangers are more because you can't see anything. So the darkness brings the dangers. So here's the point. If you walk in the daylight, there's no danger. If you walk with, walk with the light, there's no danger. If you walk in the darkness, there is danger. Now, now you say, how does that answer their question? Their question was, we're going back to Bethany and the Jews are wanting to stone you and you want to go back there again? We just left there and your life was in danger and now you want to go back into Bethany, near Jerusalem, into a place of danger again. 
To them, this seems like walking from daylight where there is plenty of safety and security into the darkness where there is plenty of danger. And Jesus is saying, he's using the proverbial statement and how he wants to apply it, one of two possible ways. Let me give you the two possibilities. It may be that Jesus means both of these things. Here are the two possibilities. First, it might be that Jesus is referring, using the daylight to refer to his earthly ministry. In other words, he's saying this, just as there is appointed 12 hours of daylight, so the Father has appointed me a period of time to do my work. That's the daylight portion. And just as nobody can alter whether the daylight is long or whether it is short, nobody can affect whether the sun rises or the sun sets, so it is true that nobody can cut me off before my time. Nobody can kill me before my time. I have an appointed portion, which is the daylight time. There is coming a time when the darkness will come, that is, Jesus will leave, and then you will be left in darkness. But as long as I am here during this period of time, you are safe, I am safe, because my hour is fixed. Remember, as I said at the beginning, there's coming a day when God is going to kill me. At the end of that, that's it. It's gone. Jesus is saying this similar thing. I have an appointed period from the Father to do my work. And as long as that period, we're in that period, we are safe. Not until the day of his death could he die, because it was appointed by the Father. So that would be similar to what he said back in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, when Jesus said, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Or it might be that what Jesus is saying is he is using stumbling or tripping and falling as an analogy for danger, and saying that as long as the disciples were with him, who is the light of the world, they themselves would be protected from danger. In other words, I'm going to Judea. If you stay here, you're going to be in the dark. That's where the danger is going to be. If you follow me into the lion's den, right into the city of Jerusalem, as it were, you can do that. And as long as you are with me, there is no danger. Because he is the light of the world. And so as long as they are with him, they are walking in the light and that there is no danger to them. It might be that that is what Jesus is intending. That would be similar to how Jesus uses the same analogy at the end of chapter 12. Or the end of, yeah, the end of chapter 12, verses 35 and 36, when he says, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. So that's how he's using the light analogy there. So which one is it? Is Jesus talking about the, the portion of time that the Father has given to him, so he is secure? Or is he talking about the, the security that the disciples have because they're with him? Or is he describing both? I think he may be describing both. He is saying to them, I am the light of the world. As long as you are with me, danger is at bay. The night is coming, and when that point comes, then you will be in danger. But until now, until then, if you are with me, you are safe and secure from all harm. That's what the Lord is getting at. Now that should have comforted their hearts. That should have should have stilled their anxiety. And Jesus, it says, verse 11, he said this, and then after that, he said to them, that's kind of John's way of saying there's a little pause here between the end of verse 10. Maybe Jesus is letting that sink in. As long as you're with me, you're safe. Pause. Let that sink in. He said this, and then after a bit, he said to them, verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Now Jesus, in using sleep to refer to death, and he is not saying that Lazarus is sleeping literally. He is saying that Lazarus was dead. And he's using a euphemism, a metaphor for death, which is sleep, and it's used throughout Scripture. It's used in the Old Testament for death. It's used in the New Testament for death. Let me give you a couple of references from the Old Testament. Daniel 12:2, which speaks of the general resurrection of the just and the unjust. Daniel 12, verse 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake 
these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So there are those who sleep in the dust of the ground. Who does that refer to? It refers to the dead. Psalm 13, verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And we're familiar with the analogy used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 of those who sleep will awake. Acts chapter 7, it says of Stephen, Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. That is such a peaceful and beautiful way to speak of death, but that's how the New Testament describes death. Now, why is it that the Scripture uses the analogy or the euphemism of sleep to refer to death? What is intended by the Bible in doing that? You and I need to be careful that when we look at an analogy like that, that we don't draw the wrong parallel, because there are groups, some quasi-Christian sects and even cults, who will use references to sleep in Scripture to teach that when we die, our soul goes to sleep. That at the moment of my death, I slip into an unconscious existence and I sleep unconsciously, unaware of anything going on around me until the day of the resurrection. Then I am woken up. So they say that the soul sleeps. Seventh-day Adventists teach that. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Paul said, it is far better than to depart and to be with Christ than to remain on in the flesh. Paul could never say it is better to die than to live if dying meant unconsciousness and living meant conscious active service and worship to God. It is only if we depart and to be with Christ immediately that death is better than life. So since it's not referring to the sleep of our soul, in what way is death like sleep or is sleep like death? Let me give you a few analogies that do sort of hold up and are true. First of all, sleep, like death, brings rest. It brings rest. You and I, when when we die, if we know Christ, for the believer it brings rest. For the unbeliever it does not. For the believer it brings rest. It is rest from spiritual battles. It is rest from temptation. It is rest from trial. It is rest from sin. It is rest from the curse. It is rest from the afflictions of this body and the concerns of this life. It is complete rest. Just like sleep is rest. You lay down and you go to sleep because you need rest. Right? One of these days you are going to die. That is going to mean for you entering into a rest. A rest from all of the concerns and the trials and the struggles of this world. Second, there is obviously a similarity between the dead body and the sleeping body. Now you can't push this too much. Some of you, when I sleep, I'm like a dead body. I don't move unless I'm, I'm nudged. But I am, I am out. I know I don't have a restless sleep. I don't fidget. I don't toss and turn. I don't do any of that. I just when I'm dead, when I'm asleep, I'm I'm as good as dead. And Deidre will attest to that. She doesn't she doesn't look anything like a dead person when she sleeps. She talks. She turns. She tosses. She's very she the the sound of anything will wake her up. But I go out and I'm dead. So for most of us, the sleeping body is much like a dead body. You see a dead body that it looks not only like it is at rest, but that it is asleep. And so there's a, a physical similarity between those two. A third similarity is that we look forward to sleep, don't we? We do? I do. I tell you right now, I'm looking forward to crawling into to my bed with its flannel pajamas, uh, flannel sheets, and stretching out with my head on the pillow and relaxing and in the darkness. I look forward to going to sleep. I'm gonna, I'll be probably be asleep within a couple hours from now. That's how I look forward to it. Oh, you look forward to sleep too. Some of you look so forward to sleep that you actually partake while you're here at church. It has this irresistible draw for you. And is it not true that the longer that you are awake, the more you look forward to sleep? That's similar to death. The longer I am awake or alive, the more I look forward to death. The more I look forward to sleep. Death has for me, and I don't mean this in a sadistic, suicidal sense, 
But death has for me a lure about it. Not death itself, but what awaits me on the other side of death has for me an irresistible draw, an irresistible lure. And the longer I am in this body of sin and death, and the older I get, the more I look forward to the sleep, the death. That ought to be natural. And the fourth similarity is that for the Christian, sleep is not something that we we fear. The sleep of death is not something that we fear. How many of you fear going to sleep? If you do, that's not natural. That's not normal. You shouldn't fear going to sleep. There's no, There's nothing to fear in sleep. You simply doze off and you go to sleep. And unless something is odd with you or your circumstance, there should be no fear in that. The same thing is true with death. There's nothing to fear. For the Christian, the sting of death has been removed. The power of death has been removed. All of that is taken away. So that for us, there is nothing in death to fear. There's uncertainty there. Yeah, we look at it and we think, how's this going to flesh out? Am I going to suffer? Is it going to be sudden? Is it going to be drug out? How is this going to happen? When is it going to happen? There's uncertainty there, but I don't fear that. Before I was a believer, I feared it. I was terrorized by the thought of death. But as a Christian, there's no fear in that. That Those are the ways in which, for a believer, death is similar to sleep. But the disciples didn't get, catch that. So they say, in verse 12, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, as with other places in the Gospel of John, when Jesus uses a figure of speech or analogy or a euphemism or a metaphor, the people who are listening didn't catch it at all. You can go back through and you can read John when he talks about living water, the woman at the well didn't get it. The bread of life, the, the disciples didn't get it. The crowd didn't get it. The light of the world, the people didn't get it. When Jesus uses a metaphor or analogy to speak of something, it goes right over the heads of his listeners. Why did it do that with the disciples? Shouldn't the disciples of all people have recognized that Jesus was speaking not of literal death, but of, uh, sorry, not of literal sleep, but of death, that he was using a euphemism to refer to death? Shouldn't they have gotten it? They should have gotten it, but why would they have missed it? What explains them missing it? J.C. Ryle says it is something to observe that man will not understand what they do not want to understand. Is it not true that the disciples were hoping that Jesus would give them a reason not to go back to Bethany? So when Jesus said, Lazarus is asleep, they instantly interpreted that in a way that it was most fitting for their fears. They didn't want to go back to Bethany. So they interpreted it in a way that is most naturally for them because that's what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear Jesus speak of Lazarus recovering. So they say, well, he'll get better then. What he needs is rest. Sick people need rest. If Lazarus is sleeping, then that's a good thing. Jesus, that's another good reason not to go to Bethany. You gave the reason, not us. So if he's sleeping, he'll recover. Let's just leave him alone. Let him rest. They actually heard what Jesus said in a way that they wanted to hear what Jesus was saying. And so Jesus said to them plainly, he said to them in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now notice in verse 14 that Jesus does not say, Lazarus is dead and I'm glad, period. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, Lazarus is dead and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. It is not the death of Lazarus that Jesus delighted in, but what was it about this situation that Jesus delighted in? That he was not there for it. If he had been there for it, he might have healed them, he might have been implored to heal them, uh, heal Lazarus. But Jesus is saying, I, Lazarus is dead, and this is what I rejoice in, that I was not there. And I'm rejoicing in this for your sake. Notice that Lazarus' death was actually going to be something that would work out for the good of the disciples. Do you notice that? Who would benefit from Lazarus' death? Lazarus? He's going to be raised. Is that a benefit? To go to heaven and then be pulled back here? Is that a benefit? That's not a benefit. Who benefits from Lazarus' death? 
Mary and Martha and all the Jews who saw that and the, who there was mourning and the disciples, all of them were the beneficiaries of Lazarus' death and Jesus resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. This is something to keep in mind when you go through suffering or affliction, to ask yourself the question, not only what is God doing in me through this, but what is God teaching other people around me through this? A lot of us want to be used by God to be a blessing to other people, but are we willing to be used by God to be a blessing to other people if that blessing is going to come through our affliction? Then are we willing to be used by God in that? We ought to be. And we ought to realize that sometimes my affliction or your affliction is teaching you something and doing something in you, yes, but think of the hundreds of people who are watching it, most of whom you don't even realize, who see what God is doing and He is glorified through that. Are we as believers content to suffer affliction and to suffer suffering and even to suffer death if God might be glorified through it, even if it means that he's not doing something in us per se, but that he is teaching somebody else something through it? We have to be willing to do that. It is not death itself which honors God in this passage. It's not that God delights in killing people or delights in the sin or delights in the evil thing. It is that God delights in the good that he brings out of that evil thing. Lazarus' death would be for the good of the disciples, Jesus said, so that you may believe. Which is kind of odd to say to the disciples, is it not? Did they not already believe? They did. So are they going to start believing because of this? That's not it. They already believed. Remember back in chapter 6, Jesus said to them, do you want to leave too? And Peter said, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. We have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Where else are we going to turn? They believed, they trusted in Him, but here's the key. There are heights to faith that need to be scaled and depths of faith that need to be plumbed. It's not that they would start believing because of this, but that they would have something else that they would believe because of this. They already believed He was the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. They already believed that He was the living water and the bread of life and the light of the world, but you know what they needed to believe? Just one month away from the crucifixion or two months away from the crucifixion? What they needed to believe is that He is the resurrection and the life. That's what they would learn. That is the depth of faith that they would gain as a result of this. So Jesus said, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you might see this, that you might see God glorified through this, and that you might believe more and believe more strongly, and that your faith might be developed, and that you would come to understand that he is the resurrection and the life. That's what God is doing through all of this. Now Thomas has the last word. Verse 16, therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, Didymus is a Hebrew form of the name Thomas, Thomas being the Greek form, Didymus being the Hebrew form. Both Didymus and Thomas both mean twin. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Now how do you take that? I wish I knew. I don't know whether to take that as a statement of great courage or a statement of great despondency or a statement of both. In times past, I've always taken this as a statement of great despondency. As if Thomas is saying, fine, let's go, we're all going to die. Suicide mission. Gather up your stuff, pack it, we're going across the Jordan, we're landing in Bethany, and that's it. This day zero for us, we're all dying. Now some people say, well, that's typical of Thomas. He's doubting Thomas, after all, known as doubting Thomas. Later in the book, he's the one who said, who's absent when Jesus first appears to the disciples. And Thomas is the one who said, unless I put my finger in the prints of his palms and put my finger in the holes in his feet and put my hand in his side where the spear went in, I will not be believing. I will, I will not believe. That was his statement. He doubted. So he's sort of the pessimistic one. And some have suggested that here Thomas is just seeing the, the negative part of this all over again. And so he's saying all he sees in this is the death. We're all going to go. We're all going to die. It's a statement of great despondency. 
Or is it that Thomas is saying here a statement of great courage and boldness? As if he caught the lesson of verses 10 and 11, where Jesus gave him the analogy of the danger not being there, as if Thomas understood that. And then Thomas was saying this, if we stay here, we're going to be without Christ. I would rather follow him right into Jerusalem than stay here without him. I would die for him. I would be willing to die with him. Better to die with him than to live without him. So let's get our stuff on and let's go to Bethany. If it means our death, hey, we're dying with the Savior. This would be similar to Peter's bold statement. Even if all men deny you, what? I will not deny you. This would be similar to Peter's statement. So is this a statement of great despondency? Or a statement of great courage? Or is it a little mixture of both? If I had to die for one, I would say it sounds to me like it's a little mixture of both. Thomas sees what there is to fear. He realizes that it could result in his death and the death of the disciples. Humanly speaking. But he is willing to say, we will follow him right to that point if necessary. Now whether it is a statement of courage or whether it is a statement of despondency and fear, it does illustrate something about us in our fallen human condition. If it is a statement of despondency, then it is evidence that Thomas thought too little of Christ. That's where fear comes from. That's where despondency and depression and discouragement come from, is when we think too little of him and his keeping power and his ability and his plan and his wisdom. We are not thinking of God rightly. If we thought of God rightly, we would never fear or be despondent of anything. So when I am in fear or despondent, when I am depressed or discouraged, it is because at the root of it, I am thinking wrongly about who God is and what he is doing. So if Thomas is discouraged and despondent here, then it is because he is thinking too little of Christ. He really doesn't believe that Jesus is going to protect him from danger. But if, on the other hand, this is Thomas' a statement of boldness and courage, then what Thomas is doing is he's thinking far too much of himself. For when the chips were down and he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he do? With the rest of the disciples, he fled. He didn't die for Christ. He wasn't willing to stand up. He went and cowered like the rest of them. So if it's a, if it's a statement of courage, Thomas is expressing far too much confidence in himself. If it is a statement of despondency, he is expressing far too much, uh, far too little confidence in Christ. I think we should give Thomas the benefit of the doubt. Like what I did there, doubting Thomas, benefit of the doubt. And say that this is probably a statement of great courage, but also a statement of, he's seeing both sides of this. Do you think that Thomas would choose to go back to Bethany? He wouldn't choose that. That was the last thing that he wanted to even talk about. But he is willing to go in spite of the danger because he has some confidence in Christ. He has some faith in him. He does trust him to a degree, but he knows that there is danger there as well. Now, whether it, the, whether all of the disciples went up in great faith and boldness or whether they went up in great fear and discouragement, I don't know. But they did follow him to Bethany, and that's where they saw the miracle. And we'll pick it up there next week. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we are truly grateful to you for what we see in Scripture regarding your Son and what he has done for us. We are thankful that you give us the faith to believe in you. We are thankful that you spend uh, the effort and the energy of planning our lives so that we might walk through difficulties and trials to see the glories of Christ. We know that if it were not for the afflictions that you appoint for us and the suffering that you give to us, we would never see things of your nature and character which are so necessary for us to see and to know. We thank you that no suffering and no affliction is ever wasted, but that you always accomplish purposefully and perfectly all that you intend by them. 
May they not be wasted in our lives, and may we gladly embrace everything that you have appointed for us, that we might see you glorified and honored. Thank you that you use affliction not only in our lives to sanctify us, but also as an encouragement and a blessing in the lives of others who are around us. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for saving us. Thank you for opening our eyes to these things. And we pray that you would confirm them in our hearts and strengthen us in our love and our adoration and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.